Amen. As we consider our text this morning, I encourage you to open up your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 7. We're going to be uh, walking through verse by verse the whole chapter, plus an additional three. While you turn there, I want to just read a quote from John Stott from Authentic Christianity that might help us get in the right attitude for our text this morning. He says in Authentic Christianity this, We need to repent of the haughty way in which we sometimes stand in judgment upon Scripture and must learn to sit humbly under its judgments instead. If we come to Scripture with our minds made up, expecting to hear from it only an echo of our own thoughts and never the thunderclap of God's, then indeed He will not speak to us and we shall only be confirmed in our own prejudices. We must allow the Word of God to confront us, to disturb our security, to undermine our complacency, and to overthrow our patterns of thought and behavior. I believe it's with this attitude that we need to approach our text this morning, because I have to tell you, the content of this morning's sermon is not fun. It's probably not going to make you feel warm and fuzzy inside. And while I would not characterize our church as one of those churches that only preach judgment and hell and brimstone, we are committed to preaching the Bible. And so that means when we come to a hard passage or something that makes us uncomfortable, we teach the text faithfully. And that's what our aim is this morning. We're continuing to look at lessons from Jeremiah. And today, as I just noted, we're going to be walking through Jeremiah chapter 7. The message of this chapter is one of prophetic judgment. A judgment that will prove to be both devastating and unavoidable for the people of God. And so before we dig into the text, let me just give you a question that I want to keep in the back of your mind as we walk through this chapter together, and then we'll come back to it towards the end. The question is simple. Why did you come to church today? Why did you come to church today? And maybe if I was to add a follow-up, do you think how you answer that question matters to God. What I hope that you'll see this morning is that this passage and the rest of Scripture teaches us that God absolutely cares about how you answer this question. Why did you come to church today? And notice the question is, why did you come to church today? Not, did you come to church today? So with that in mind, we're going to jump into Jeremiah chapter 7, but if you'll just join me with a brief word of prayer. Dear Lord, we need you to speak to us today through your word. It's our prayer that our hearts and mind would be open and receptive to what the Spirit might need to do in our hearts so that we may walk with integrity in your house this morning. We pray these things in your name. Amen. 
So with that in mind, I'll have the verses on the screen, but honestly, you probably just want your Bible open to Jeremiah 7, because we're only going to read a couple verses at a time, and then we'll just walk through them together. So the first two verses of Jeremiah chapter 7 kind of set the stage and the context for us. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. So God sends the prophet Jeremiah right to the gate of the temple in Jerusalem. He calls him to proclaim the word of the Lord. This is the job of the prophet. If we were to try to put it in a modern context, imagine a prophet standing on the front porch as you entered into church this morning. And as you and the others started to gather together for worship, he starts calling out to everyone, preaching. But imagine he says this to you as you are walking into the house of worship. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Abend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And once you got over the idea of a prophet standing on our front porch, you would realize what he's saying in these first two verses is that there's a problem with the people of Judah, the remnant of God's people. Those two problems are simple. The first one is simply their ungodly behavior. And the second will be their misplaced trust. And so the prophet is going to continue to expand on these two concepts throughout the chapter. So I think it's enough to say at the moment that these two reasons are the, are the reason for this sermon outside the temple gate. Their ungodly behavior and their misplaced trust. And so we get the first glimpse at the ungodly behavior as God calls His people to repentance so that they might live in the promised land in peace forever. So look with me at verses 5 through 7. God says, For if... You truly amend your ways and your deeds. If you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever." Now, this is a, a warning because what God is clearly doing is pointing out deficiencies in the behavior, the actions of his people. The word amend that we saw in verse two and now in verse five, if you truly amend your ways would literally mean to make good. God is saying you need to make good your pattern of life, which implies that their pattern of life was not good. They had no concern for justice. They were oppressing the vulnerable among them, taking advantage of the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow, not caring or looking out for them. They had shed innocent blood. They were going after other gods. And so God told them, your only hope, 
To stay in the land would be to change these ungodly and immoral behaviors. And you might wonder, how could the people of God have fallen into such a miserable state? How could they ignore the commands of God who had so graciously provided for them, bringing them out of the exodus into the promised land? And now this is their state. No concern for justice, oppression of the vulnerable, shedding innocent blood, going after other gods. This is answered as we look at the second major problem addressed here by Jeremiah. Not only did they have ungodly behavior, but they had misplaced trust. Remember verse 4 said, do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And Jeremiah explains what he's talking about in verses 8 through 11. He says, behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, to go after other gods that you have not known? And then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered. Only to go on doing all of these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, God says, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. What had happened to Judah? They had put their trust in the physical temple of the Lord. They apparently had assumed just its mere physical presence was enough to assure their well-being. 120 or so years earlier, the whole northern kingdom had fallen to Assyria. And apparently the common thought was, well, Judah survived because we housed the temple of the Lord. We have God's favor because the temple resides with us. So the people would walk into the temple. They would declare worship with their lips. But then they would fulfill the ritual of the law, but they would never understand or even care about the heart of God himself. What Jeremiah is doing is painting the picture of hypocrisy to the highest degree. And that those few verses, he named six of the Ten Commandments that the people were routinely breaking. Stealing, the Eighth Command. Murder, the Sixth Commandment. Committing adultery, the Seventh. Lying, the Ninth. Worshiping idols, number one. And going after God's number two. But you see, the real issue here is that they were so preoccupied with the temple rituals, they gave little or no concern to the ethical demands of the covenant. But maybe even worse than the breaking of the commandments was the fact that after breaking the commandments, they would walk into the house of the Lord, declare worship for him, only to walk back out the doors and continue to violate God's law, continue to live in sin and rebellion and disobedience. God says that this place may be called by his name. But we can be sure that he certainly would not accept this kind of false worship from these sinful people who are so arrogant to think that going through the motions of worship would keep God on their side. So bold as to say, we are delivered. And then as soon as they step out of the temple, they go on sinning. 
God declares that they had made his house, the temple, a den of robbers. He's portraying them as false worshipers who are violent thieves, preying on others. And so God has a response for these people who have put their trust in the ritual in the temple. And it's not good news for the people of Judah. Look with me at verses 12 through 15. Let's start with verse 12. God says, Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. God is calling Judah to, to think back. To think back when they first crossed the river Jordan. As the people of Israel wandered the desert, they had a portable tabernacle, the tent of meeting. They would, from place to place, they would erect this thing. The Ark of the Covenant was inside. It signified the presence of God amongst His people. But when they crossed into the Promised Land, they were able to set up a more permanent structure that had pillars and the whole deal. And inside the Ark of the Covenant. And there, it was there at Shiloh that that was established. And so Shiloh was the first permanent tabernacle of God. And it stood for 370 years as a central place of worship for God's people. Except God allowed it to be destroyed. God allowed it to be destroyed by the Philistines. And do you you know why He allowed this to happen? It actually connects back to our last series going through the life of Samuel. Or two series ago. We read the story, so we won't necessarily get into it here, but what had happened was Eli, the high priest, he had two wicked and worthless sons, is how they were described, who were priests. They were in charge of this temple at Shiloh, in charge of helping the people bring worship and offer sacrifice. And what they began to do was desecrate the sacrifices. What they began to do was use the temple for their own personal gain. What they began to do was to oppress the people, to mislead God's people in their worship. Does it start to sound a little familiar? Because this is also what's happening in the land of Judah. So what happens? God allows Shiloh to be overrun by the Philistines. Shiloh is raised to the ground. Hophni and Phinehas, those two sons, are killed. When Eli hears about what happened to the ark and his sons, he falls out of his chair, breaks his neck, and dies. The temple stood for 370 years and one day God said, I've had enough of your false worship and your pretense and your personal gain. It's over. It's done. You're handed over to the Philistines. And so as God gives this word to Jeremiah, he's telling Judah, you think you can trust in the physical location of the temple to be your safety and security? Go back to Shiloh. See how it worked out for them. I will do to you what I have done in Shiloh before. I'm not interested in your ritual. I'm not interested in your false religion. Don't think, don't trust in the house of worship being what I'm about. And so he continues on. And now... Because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen, and when I called you, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name, and in which you trust, 
and to the place that I gave you and your fathers as I did to Shiloh. I will cast you out of my sight as I cast out all your kinsmen and all the offspring of Ephraim. It's referencing those northern tribes that were taken by the Assyrians over a hundred years earlier. God's warning Judah. They're going to face the same judgment as those in Shiloh. And it didn't come without reason or warning. These verses tell us that God spoke, but the people did not listen. That God called, but the people did not answer. And so now the time has come for judgment. The people are so far gone. They're so committed to their sin, so indifferent to their behavior, that no one and nothing will be able to save them. It's so bad that in the next few verses, God God tells Jeremiah not to even pray for his people. Because their end has already been determined by their own sinful heart and actions. Look at verse 16. As for you, Jeremiah, God says, do not pray for these people or lift up a cry or prayer for them. And do not intercede with me, for I will not hear you. Do not see what they are Do you not see what they are doing in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? He gives another example. The children gather wood. The fathers kindle fire. And the women knead dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven. And they pour out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger. But is it I whom they provoke, declares the Lord? Is it not themselves to their own shame? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my anger and my wrath will be poured out on this place, upon man and beast, upon the trees of the field and the fruit of the ground. It will burn and not be quenched. Well, God describes idolatry becoming a family affair. It sounds like a nice Saturday morning. The children are gathering wood, the Fathers are kindling fire. The women are kneading bread. Except then you find that they're making cakes for the queen of heaven. This was a pagan astral deity. They're taking other offerings to other gods. And all the while, what they don't realize is that they're paving the way to their own destruction. To their own shame, they have turned away from the one true God to worship idols that were made with hands. So God promises the coming of his wrath and it will not be turned away. But the picture continues to get worse. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, add to your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat the flesh. Now, what God's saying here in this moment is how meaningless and worthless their ritual offerings were. You see, the burnt offering, according to the Torah and the, in the law, was meant to be totally and entirely consumed. And this picture of a totally and consumed burnt offering was an acknowledgement of personal sin. It was a desire for a, a renewed relationship, and it, and it pictured a promise of forgiveness and restoration from God. But now, you know what God says? Yeah, go ahead. Eat it. You might as well eat it and enjoy it now because it's worthless. It's meaningless. These rituals that you're going through, just keep it. I don't want it. And forgiveness is not coming your way. Because you are not offering it with the right heart. You don't trust in me. 
You're trusting in the method of your worship in the place of the temple. For in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, verse 22, I did not speak to your fathers or command them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. But this command I gave them, obey my voice and I will be your God and you shall be my people and walk in all the way that I command you that it may be well with you. But they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked in their own counsels in the stubbornness of their evil hearts and went backward and not forward. From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets to them day after day. Yet they did not listen or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. The picture gets worse and worse for the people of Judah. Since the time they have entered the promised land, they've been struggling with proper allegiance to God. They refuse to wholly submit their hearts and lives to God. Despite His miraculous deliverance, despite His promises, despite the warnings of the prophets, the people still refuse to repent, continue down the spiral of sin and disobedience, leading to a stubborn, a cold heart. So God tells Jeremiah, So you shall speak all the words to them, but they will not listen to you. You shall call to them, but they will not answer you. And you shall say to them, this is the nation that did not obey the voice of the Lord their God and did not accept discipline. Truth has perished. It is cut off from their lips. This is just further evidence of the depths of their rebellion. They've ignored the word of the Lord through Jeremiah and all the prophets that had come before. They refuse to repent. There's no longer any truth to be found in their midst. And so all that's left for the prophet to do is mourn. Reminded of the prophet, uh, of the person of Job in verse 29. Cut off your hair and cast it away. Raise a lamentation on the bare heights. For the Lord has rejected and forsaken the generation of his wrath. Now, at this point, you may be like, this is intense, this is heavy, the judgment of God, this is harsh. And, and, and you might be wondering at this point, but this is God who we're talking about, and why couldn't God just extend forgiveness, maybe just one more time, maybe just one more chance, and the people of God would actually repent this time. And if you're still hanging on to a shred of that, read the next two verses. For the sons of Judah have done evil in my sight, declares the Lord. They have set their detestable things in the house that is called by my name to defile it. And they have built the high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it ever come into my mind. We've gone from willful disobedience idolatry, trusting in religious rituals. But now, honestly, they have just completely lost their minds. 
They were no longer satisfied to worship other gods out there. They began to bring their images and their idols into God's house, defiling it. And then, beyond that, when they would leave saying, we've been delivered, God loves us, they would leave their false worship, then take their children down into the valley of Hinnom and offer their children as burnt sacrifices to the pagan god Molech. These are people who were called by God's name. And God's not going to stand for that much longer. This is how far gone the people of God really were. So we shouldn't be surprised by the judgment of God that again is pronounced at the end of this chapter. And we'll read the first three verses of chapter 8. I'll finish out our text. Therefore, behold... The days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no longer be called Topeth or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. For they will bury in Topeth because there is no room elsewhere. And the dead bodies of this people will be food for the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth, and none will frighten them away. And I will silence the cities of Judah. And in the streets of Jerusalem, the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, and the voice of the bride, for the land shall become a waste. At that time, declares the Lord, the bones of the kings of Judah, the bones of its officials, the bones of its priests, the bones of its prophets, and the bones of the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall be brought out of their tombs. And they shall be spread before the sun and the moon and all the host of heaven, which they have loved and served which they have gone after, and which they have sought and worshipped. And they shall not be gathered or buried. They shall be as dung on the surface of the ground. Death shall be preferred to life by all the remnant that remains of this evil family in all the places where I have driven them, declares the Lord. We can go into specifics. But I think we get the picture that's being summed up here in this last passage. The judgment and wrath of God is going to come down and it's going to come down hard and it will be remembered, as we'll see in a moment, forever. That people would prefer to die than to be left after the wrath of God is poured out on this place. Jeremiah promises that this valley where they brought their children to be sacrificed to Molech will become the ironic site of their own destruction. It will be renamed not the Valley of Hinnom, but the Valley of Slaughter. For they will bury the dead in Topeth until there is no more room. That's how many people are going to face God's ultimate judgment. And sure enough, It shouldn't come as a surprise. God keeps his promises. His wrath did come, Jeremiah 39, about 20 years later, after repeated warnings like this leading up to that point. I'll just read you a portion of what that looked like. So God used the Babylonians, also known as the Chaldeans, to come deliver his wrath on his people. The king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah, that's God's priest, Zedekiah and Ribelah before his eyes. And the king of Babylon slaughtered all the nobles of Judah, He put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains to take him to Babylon. 
The Chaldeans burned the king's house and the house of its people and broke down the walls of Jerusalem. Then Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried into exile to Babylon the rest of the people who were left in the city, those who had deserted him and the people who remained. And that's the end of Judah. Destruction, death, judgment. Eyes poked out, led in chains, back to Babylon. That is the result of ungodly behavior and misplaced trust within God's people. The temple did not help them. Their ritual worship did not help them. And so that's the end of their story, but not quite the end of the sermon yet, because we haven't made any connections to our lives today, more than 2,500 years after the fact. And after hearing all of that, you're probably, this does not relate to me. Way too much wrath, way too much blood, way too much judgment. After all, I'm in church, and look around, there are no idols in here. I have never been part of any form of child sacrifice. There is nothing in here that could possibly apply to me. Well, while some of that may be true, we need to turn to Matthew chapter 21. We need to turn to Matthew 21, which shows us Jesus, right after riding into Jerusalem the week before his crucifixion. And what Jesus comes to discover, as he's been discovering over the past three years of ministry, is that the now rebuilt Jerusalem, with the now rebuilt temple, is suffering from many of the same problems of the house of Judah years and years before. And it angers Jesus. Verse 12 of Matthew 21. And Jesus entered the temple, and he drove out all who sold and bought in that temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and to the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, watch this, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Yes, Jesus is quoting the passage that we just went through in Jeremiah chapter 7. And I don't believe there would have been an Israelite in that temple that day that missed what Jesus was saying through this bit of symbolic reenactment. That God was coming to destroy the temple as an act of judgment against Israel's empty religious practices, against their faith and hope in their temple against their hypocrisy in worship, against their oppression and lack of care for injustice. Jesus is there saying, you, it's coming to you in this place just as it came to Judah. And so you might be still saying, yes, but those are Pharisees and they were Jews, but this is the New Testament era and praise the Lord, that is true. However, we are not exempt from this same kind of language. We won't turn there. I'll just um, read a couple snippets from the book of Revelation where you hear echoes of the same teaching from Jesus to the New Testament churches of Asia Minor. He says things like, I will remove the lampstand from you, church of Ephesus. I will come make war against you, church of Pergamum. I will strike dead, the children of the false prophetess in the church of Thyatira. 
I will come like a thief against the unrepentant church in Sardis. And I will spit out of my mouth the lukewarm church of Laodicea. Those were literal churches in a literal place in the New Testament era. And God says, Jesus says, beware of ungodly behavior and misplaced trust. The warnings against those two things were not just for Judah, were not just for Pharisees, but they're also for the church today. And so for in our last remaining couple of minutes, I just want to consider what we might learn and apply from these lessons, the bad examples of Judah and the Pharisees. Judah's first problem was disobedience. Disobedience, they had ignored the commands of God and put their desires first. This resulted in what? Injustice, oppression, and idolatry. Listen, as a church, we are still prone to turn a blind eye, to not care, or even worse, participate in these three things. There are still issues of justice and oppression that are still relevant to the church today. Now, I'm not talking about the over-politicized version of social justice that is all political and out there and riles everybody up. But I am talking about, and the church should be concerned with, biblical justice. As people of God, we ought to be looking out for the most vulnerable among us. As people of God, we ought to be caring for those in need. As people of God, we ought to care about the innocent and stand up for the rights of those who do not have a voice. There are true issues of injustice and oppression that the church should stand up for and even against at times. Oppression might look different today, but it still is something that needs to be addressed within the church. And so you have the big cultural issues, but there's also things that can look a little different, maybe, in your heart. Taking advantage of other people can be a form of oppression. Husbands, neglecting your wife and family can be a form of oppression. Withholding forgiveness from someone can be a form of oppression. They're all forms of oppression that we harbor in our hearts, even as we walk into church on Sunday morning. There's a warning here that applies to either you or me. We should pause right here and preach an entire sermon on idolatry in our modern culture and even within the church today. It was John Calvin who said that our hearts are an idol factory. And it's true. We live in a fallen world. We're constantly seeking other things. To worship, even though the Creator has clearly revealed Himself in all of creation and through His Word. We're looking for other things to worship. What is idolatry? Tim Keller, counterfeit gods, he says this. What is an idol? An idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. And anything that you seek to give you what only God can give. That's an idol. It's easy to place our identity in something or someone other than God. Our own pride and ego can easily become an idol. Our own comfort, prosperity, the pursuit of money, materialism, entertainment has become an idol. Sex, sexuality, all the stuff wrapped in with that, that has become an idol in our society and culture and it's even creeping into the church. We could preach a whole sermon, a whole series. But here's what you should ask yourself. Analyze your own heart. Where do you spend your time? Where do you spend your money? Where do you find joy? What's always on your mind? 
Is it the things of God? Where on the list do they rank? Consider the idolatry that may be in your own heart. Judah's second problem was misplaced trust. This is where we started. Why did you come to church today? The people of Judah thought that ritual, the physical location, would be enough. God says it is not. Do you view God or church as your insurance policy? Do you think that you can walk out these doors today, having attended here, and go live out however you want to live, doing whatever you want to do, living immoral, participating in ungodly behavior? But since you are here today, that God will give you a pass, that he will extend favor towards you? Do you think that being a member of the chapel of the lake gains you forgiveness before the Lord? If so, you are gravely mistaken. We are in the same danger as the people of Judah and the Pharisees after them. And this is made even more clear if we were to go to Matthew chapter 23, which we don't really have time to go to. But Matthew 23 is a series of woes from Jesus to the Pharisees. And he starts each one pretty much the same way. Woe to you Pharisees, you hypocrites. And he goes through these series of woes and just blasting them for their hypocrisy. And he finishes the list of woes with this verse. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? He says they're in danger of judgment. Eternal judgment. But this word hell here, Greek word Gehenna. Gehenna was translated from the Aramaic before that. Gehenom. And before that, it came from the Hebrew. He Gnome. The valley of He Gnome. The valley of Hinnom. Which we just looked at in Jeremiah chapter 7. Jesus, as He brings and declares judgment on the Pharisees and the hypocrites, is referencing the same valley of Hinnom from our passage this morning. You see, what had happened between then and now, 70 years of the destruction of Jerusalem, the exiles were allowed to go back to Israel and rebuild. And so when they went and rebuilt, that valley of slaughter, which was previously the valley of Hinnom, become the valley of slaughter, but as they came back, they have now repurposed that place, a place where they used to bring their children for sacrifice, but now it became, according to Second Kings 23, a ever-burning rubbish heap. You see, Israel would go down into the valley and dump their trash. They would dump dead criminals. They would dump dead animals. All manner manner of trash and filth and dirt and sewage. It all went down into the valley of Hinnom, the valley of slaughter. Now, Gehenna. Now, the Gehenna Valley was a place of continual burning. Burning sewage, burning flesh, garbage, maggots and worms crawled through the waste. Isaiah says that the smoke smelled strong and sickening perpetually. It was a place that everyone in Jerusalem knew about. It was filthy, disgusting, repugnant. 
impulsive. And Gehenna was what Jesus decided to use as a symbolic depiction of hell. A place of eternal torment and constant uncleanness. But he uses a real life physical illustration of what he's talking about. And through this warning, this illustration, he connects his listeners back to the same warnings that God gave Judah. And so hear this. So for Jesus, hell, Gehenna, is a final place reserved for those who, like Judah, persistently reject God's call to repentance. It's for those seeking false security in something other than faith in God's gracious provision so they can pursue their idols and continue in their destructive ways of life. What we need to understand now is house of Judah, misplaced trust, ungodly behavior, refusal to repent, God's wrath and judgment comes down. Years later, the people of God reject Christ. They're trusting in the temple once again. They refuse to repent. 70 AD, Jerusalem is raised to the ground. Judgment comes upon the people of Israel. And Jesus is using these two illustrations to speak to the church today. The church is in Revelation as well, where he says, if you are going to go down that path of not only ungodly behavior, but misplaced trust, if you refuse to repent, You will face that same judgment. The judgment that came upon Judah, the judgment that came upon Jerusalem, is a picture of the eternal judgment illustrated by Gehenna, a burning, smelly trash pile that no one wants any part of. That's what you're in danger of today. If we do not repent and respond to the Word of God. If you come in here and give lip service to God, only to walk out of here and mistreat your neighbors, your family, your friends. And then you come back in here on Sunday morning and pretend like everything's fine. You're in risk of God's judgment. When you harbor lust in your heart, whether it's over a person or stuff, when you become angry at your brother or sister and you harbor that and you come to worship and pretend like it's all okay and God sees you're a Sunday morning attendance as the end all of your religion and you walk out of here only to continue to do it again, you are at risk of the judgment of God. When you elevate anything, your identity, your job, your possessions, your relationships, your comfort, anything above the worship of God, and you come in here and pretend that He's something to you when He is nothing, you are in risk of the judgment of God. This applies to the church today. Because it's never been about a specific people group or person. It's always been about the heart. And where your heart is with God. I can't make that judgment for you. God sees your heart and Him alone. It's your responsibility to respond to Him. Now, thankfully, as we come to the end, I promise, Jesus offers an alternative message to all who are willing to listen to His words and all who are willing to listen to His words today. I got this from someone else. I apologize because I don't know who wrote it, but this is what they say. Jesus' own body, as the true temple of God, would be destroyed on the cross as the ultimate sacrifice for rebellious covenant breakers but then raised on the third day. 
All who trust in Him as their true source of hope, not merely a lucky charm who offers you a get-out-of-hell-free card, are given new hearts and new lives. These new lives result in the kinds of things that God has always wanted for Israel, His people, true worship, acts of justice, obedience to His words. God is after our hearts, not our rituals. And so why you come to church matters way more than the act of going to church. The way we live our lives then is a reflection of our relationship with God. Are you cultivating a heart that is right with God? Stick to the word of God. Judah was fooled by deceptive words, chants, deceitful hearts. Our only hope is to stick to the word of God. Focus on relationship, not ritual. Don't misplace your trust in anything other than Christ and his finished work on Calvary. Strive to obey We are called to walk in integrity, not hypocrisy. How we obey demonstrates our devotion to God. Seek to serve others. Put others before yourself. Because how we treat others also points to our understanding of what Christ has done for us. So lastly, rely On his grace. Thankfully, we trust in Christ and not ourselves. Why did you come to church today? I hope it was to express your love for God, to bring him the sacrifice that he does desire, to be with fellow believers who get it and understand, and as we all gather around the person and work of Jesus. Because anything else means that we're, we're satisfied with our own attempts at worship. And then we're in danger of missing out on God himself. And so as we sung earlier, what is our hope in life and death? Thankfully, it's nothing about us. It's not where we go to church, our rituals. No, Christ alone. Christ alone. What is our only confidence? It's certainly not my own strength or my own doing. That our souls to Him belong, who holds our days within His hand. What comes apart from His command? And what will keep us to the end? The love of Christ in which we stand. And as we are about to sing together, Unto the grace, what will we sing? Christ, He lives. Christ, He lives. And what reward will heaven bring? Everlasting life with Him. There we will rise to meet the Lord. Then sin and death will be destroyed. And we will feast in endless joy when Christ is ours forevermore.
Christ is ours to enjoy. Life with him can begin today if it hasn't already. Don't leave today. Don't walk out the doors today without knowing the life-giving source of joy and purpose that can only be found in Jesus. Will you pray with me? Dear Lord, this would all be utterly overwhelming if it wasn't for your son Jesus. Lord, we're thankful that it is not about us, but oh, keep us from thinking that it is. Keep us from disobedience. Keep us from putting our trust in anything other than you. Help us come to worship with a pure heart. Let us be able to sing hallelujah. Because we know it is all about you and what you have done in us. So Lord, we pray we claim the promise that you will continue to finish the work that you have begun in us. May we live in the joy that you have for us. May we be a light that is so desperately needed in a broken and hurting world today. It's in your name we pray. Amen.